0: Get, let's get to work. Last Sunday, we basically looked at the second part of the first worship-related subject, where the apostle Paul uses Genesis one and two to correct the Corinthians' backwards view of headship and submission. They had this this whole thing kind of backwards in 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 the Corinthian church, and you had women doing things that men are supposed to do, and men doing things that women uh, were supposed to do, and it was just all backwards and He lays out the order of creation, admonishes the men to stop acting like women by covering their heads during prayer and prophecy and to start exercising proper headship and and the authority they've been given by God. Basically, he issued a command to the men to be the men in the church. And he also admonished the women to stop acting like men and to start wearing the outward symbol of their submission, which at that time and in that context was head coverings, especially during prayer and prophesying. So that's what we dealt with last week, and I was really thankful for last week and the text we were in because it gave us some relief because I think many of us were wondering if we need to go back to the days of head coverings. And we learned at the end of the text that a woman's hair can serve as her head covering in a context where that's not necessary, like here. So that was, praise the Lord, I had to return all the head coverings I'd bought for Rachel from Amazon (laughs) and send them back. She said she wasn't going to wear them anyways, and I said, see, the text is about you, honey. Uh, but in any case, we were thankful for that. And this morning, we're gonna we're gonna focus on that second worship-related subject. Like I said, there's like five or six of them, from from chapter 14 all the way through the end of the book. I think there's probably five. And and this one that we're gonna be looking at today, and we're gonna have to spread it out because there's so much going on. But the worship-related subject the Corinthians were getting wrong again. It was the head coverings before. Now it's the Lord's Supper or the sacraments. This is something that they were also they had, for lack of better words, carnalized it. Not carmel, carnalized it. They had made, given it kind of a worldly treatment, kind of turned it into a pagan party. And so this is the, the thing that we'll begin to look at today. Um, the good news is, is that the Corinthians were into celebrating communion quite regularly. So that's kind of the good part about it, right? They came together frequently and often to celebrate communion, as the word says. The, the problem is they just weren't doing it right. So they set aside time just as we do, but their view had become corrupted. The practice of it was corrupted. Uh, they were turning that sacred feast, as I said, into a kind of a pagan party. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, Paul presents a scriptural definition and defense for the Lord's Supper or for communion. He describes what it is and how it should be practiced or celebrated. And over the course of three weeks, I'll present the three main points that we see in this text culminating with our own celebration of communion. Hopefully by the time we're done looking at it in depth and detail, and I'm not saying that we haven't gotten it right in the past, I think we have, but by the time we're done with this, we should never, ever, ever get it wrong again or ever get it wrong, period. Because it's just an exhaustive defense of what it is. Now it talks about Paul talks about the mindset as you're going into it, not just the practice and the formalities or the, the, uh, the polity of it, how it's, you know, how you um, dis- uh, dispense the elements and these sorts of things, but the heart and attitude and theology behind it, it's just really, really good. And so we'll, we'll kind of celebrate communion as we get to the end of this kind of little mini series within the broader series. So I'll present three points over the course of three weeks, culminating with communion, Uh, Lord willing, that is, he could change things up, but this will all culminate on June 4th. I'd like to pray for God's help before we actually get into the text and get to work. Lord, we thank you so far just for the shower of grace that you've poured out on us so far, just in the reading of your word and in the singing of your word and singing the, the great old hymns Uh, that really capture the biblical reality and truth better than a lot of today's music. We're just thankful that you have given us grace upon grace thus far in the service, even through the announcements and making us aware of those who are sick and need prayer and things like that, a time where we could give our gifts to you. This is all by your grace as I prayed before the service with our our leadership team that we're sitting here because of your grace. We're hearing the truth because of your grace. We're able to give because of your grace. Everything is tied to your amazing grace. And so, Lord, we just thank you in advance in how you will grace us now through your word. Teach us about this one particular means of grace that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And that's what the Bible calls it. So teach us about it, Lord. This is something that we as believers, we want to get it right why? Because we're under the law? No, because we love you. And that's because you first loved us. And so we want to get this right for the glory of your name, for your worship. And really, at the same time, that when we do that, we get joy out of it. And so we want to do it for the right reasons. Teach us this morning about the Lord's Supper. We thank you for our guests. We pray that as they travel out of here this week or today or whenever, that they're safe on the highways. We pray for those who are sick and aren't with us and everything else. We love you and lift this whole service up to you. Help us now. And we pray in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So we want to start with our first point. Remember, three points over the course of three weeks. The first thing we see here in this text is Paul excoriates the Corinthians for abusing communion. Just gives them a double-barrel shotgun blast to the chest. Just hammers them over this. This You can see and you'll hear the seriousness of his excoriation or rebuke in the text. It's just when he finds out through a letter that was written to him that they have been mistreating this, you know, one of two sacraments, he just (laughs) lets them have it and rightfully so. And and this we see uh, firstly in verses, actually in verses 17 to 22 is where we see it. It's in the text that we're looking at today. And we'll start at verse 17 as we just kind of walk through his, his excoriation of them, his harsh, heavy rebuke. He says this firstly, but in the following instructions, like with what I'm about to say to you, he says, I do not commend you. I cannot commend you is what he's saying. Because when you come together, it is not, and he's talking about coming together for the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together, add in there for the Lord's Supper, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, just stop there. This is not something that we would ever want to hear from any Christian, let alone an apostle. To have him put it this way, to say that, you know, I would like to commend your behavior, but I can't because when you come together, it's it's not for the good of the people. It's not for the glory of God. It makes everything worse. I mean, this is just as heavy as you can get. This is me running out the door like a scared child. Oh, Lordy, have we blown it. I mean, I just, I wouldn't even want to sit under this if I was them. It's terrifying. Really begins this, you know, this section begins with or or kind of like if you think about it, if you were with us last week or if you've read this, this portion of the letter, it kind of begins like the last section did. But there's a major difference here. Paul now cannot commend the Corinthians for their behavior. But back in verse 2, he basically says, good job for remembering to reach out to me when you have questions and for holding to some of the traditions I passed you. So what we're seeing, it's very similar to the previous section with the exception that now, back then, he commended them for their behavior. And now he cannot commend them. So it's similar but different. It was positive, now it's negative. He's saying when you come together to celebrate communion... You are not making things better for each other. You are making them worse. In verse 2, we see commendation from Paul, but now in verse 17, we see condemnation from Paul. He is condemning the way they come together and practice communion. And let me tell you, there's a whole lot of churches out there that could use this lesson today because they're making a mockery of communion. At its very core... Speaking of communion, at its very core, the communion has several purposes, but at its very core, it is intended to enhance and better the lives of believers. That is its mission, if it had a mission statement, it it would be right above it, like here's communion, here's the mission statement, make the lives of believers better. Enhance their lives, grow them spiritually, bless their socks off with God's grace. So when Paul says, I cannot commend you because when you come together, you make it worse. Now feel the gravity of what he's saying. You have to understand the intent and purpose of communion to understand the gravity of what he's saying. Communion is meant to bless. Communion is meant to grace. Communion is meant to enhance, to make Tim and Phil's and Collins and anyone who practices it, it's intended to make their life better. And that's not what they're doing here. It is meant to nourish us spiritually as we reflect on the atoning work of Christ and partake of his sacrificial symbols, the symbols of his work, the bread and the cup. Martin Luther's buddy, Theodore Beza, and if you can get your hands on anything by Beza, do it because it's astonishing work. He said this, the means which the Holy Spirit uses to create, feed, and strength and faith in us are the word of God and His sacraments. And one of those sacraments is communion. That's by Theodore Beza. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace that God uses to build up the faith of His people. So It's it's important at the level of when we come together and it's done right, it actually, it makes things better for us by building our faith, by strengthening our faith, by broadening our faith in Jesus Christ. But when it is mishandled, when it is abused, it becomes literally counterproductive. It makes things worse when it's mishandled. This is what Paul is saying. God Judges those who mishandle the bread and the cup. And I would say quickly, not just the ministers when they do not minister it properly or have the right heart behind it, but those who participate in it. Any, anyone, whether they're leading or subjecting themselves to it and participating in it, anyone who mishandles the bread and the cup, God treats them as if they are mishandling the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the severity and seriousness of this When you abuse the elements, you abuse the body and blood of Christ. When a person takes the elements in a quote-unquote unworthy manner, it is tantamount to trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, and outraging the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, 29. What I'm trying to do is capture the significance and importance of this sacrament, that when it is done right, it is such a blessing. When it is done right, it literally can become like a curse. It is so very serious. And this is why some of these Corinthians had become, quote, weak and ill, and were even, quote, dying, if you slide down to verse 30. Their mistreatment and abuse of communion had led to God's punishment, maybe his judgment, at least at the very minimum, his discipline. And in that, some were becoming weak, ill, and even dying, physically dying, losing their lives. The sacraments are serious. They are life-giving and or potentially life-taking. When we approach the divine supper table, we are... Entering holy ground, kind of like Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3.5 and Acts 7.33. When we we enter, it's it's that when we draw close to the supper table, the Lord's supper table, with the with the symbolism of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. We it's it's like entering holy ground and, and you know, not necessarily removing our shoes like Moses did, but we have to remove every pretension every false motivation, every ill thought, every sin, and then draw near in humble reverence, in contrition, that's brokenness over sin, and in true faith in Christ. In verses 18 to 22, Paul identifies three particular sins that were damaging communion in the Corinthian church, and like we just said in verse 30, bringing many of these brothers and sisters under judgment or divine discipline, sick, ill, even death. And what I'd like to do is, as we move forward, just analyze and focus on each one of these particular sins. They're in the narrative. So let's look at sin A, divisions. Divisions is the first sin that Paul points out, and he does it in verses 18 to 19, divisions. And he says this in verse 18, beginning in 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, again, the reference is communion, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Stop there. So, when we began this series and started working through the book, when we got into chapters 1 through 4 and we exposit to those and walked through them, we did learn some things about the Corinthians and we learned that there were divisions in the church. Now, we called that first section carnal unity. Carnal unity, if you just want to translate it out, it just means Divisions. It's a worldly kind of unity, and worldly unity consists of all sorts of divisions. And so we already learned that this church was divided, and in those four chapters, we learned that they were divided over their favorite preachers. Remember that? I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollos. He was a tremendous preacher, probably the Paul washer of his day. Well, yeah, you follow Apollos, you follow Paul, well, that's all fine and dandy. I follow Cephas. Or Peter. Man, he's the head apostle. There's nobody like this dude. Of course, he has a foot-shaped mouth. And then there was a group that said things like, okay, you guys all follow these amazing preachers. We follow the ultimate preacher. His name is Jesus Christ. So you had these factions and these divisions over favorite preachers. It would be like in this church. Well, some follow Phil. And some follow Cameron. And some follow Dave. And and some are following Mike Boyd, who's no longer with us. And some are following Bruce. I mean, how ridiculous would this be? It would be especially ridiculous in a church of this size, because I'd have like two, and Cameron would have three. Bruce would have about 90. (laughs) Everybody likes him. Nobody likes me. Uh, Yeah, whatever. Uh, just think of how stupid this would be if it played out and you know, some of you were visiting and you attended church and just, this is just, just ridiculous. And I think it's safe to say that it is ridiculous to us but in our hearts we secretly do like one preacher over another. I just don't think we're willing to go as far as to say I only show up on the Sundays that so-and-so is preaching. And I actually saw this play out at Big Valley when people, they would always keep Rick's vacations under wraps Because if people found out he was going to be in Hawaii the coming weekend, about half the congregation stayed home. And when he found out about it, he was ticked. He's like, I'm still going to Hawaii, but I mean, that is ridiculous. So you do see it in a real way. But here it was just you had these little camps and little pockets of people. So there was already all sorts of divisions and things happening and, and what Paul is revealing to us now, then they were, at, at, at one point, they were divided over their favorite preachers and what he's revealing to us now and what we see now is that they were also divided socioeconomically into classes, rich, middle class, poor. Now, I don't even know if we had middle class back then, but in any case, there was at least rich and poor. When the Corinthians came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what was happening is the rich stuck together and they distanced themselves from the poorer believers who didn't have the Versace or whatever, you know, the turbo camel, so to speak. They didn't have all the luxury stuff and the rich would just separate from them during communion services. They were refusing to interact with and fellowship with those who did not symbolize or meet their socioeconomic expectations. And the purpose, again, another purpose of communion is to bring the people of God together. It's meant to bring, like, like, everyone who names the name of Christ is welcome to the Lord's Supper table and everyone should come. Socioeconomics doesn't matter and there's there's no class, there's no male, female, Scythian, Roman, barbarian in the Church of Christ. I mean, we're not saying we're doing away with gender and all that or an ethnicity. What Paul means is that that's just not the way to look at it. We're all one in Christ and Communion is a marvelous representation of this oneness and unity. And yet here in the Corinthian church, you've got factions, and it's primarily rich versus poor. The supper is where all God's people are supposed to be welcomed from every tribe and tongue, and regardless of their ethnicity, if they're Hispanic or Caucasian or African, just French. I don't know if that's it. That's me. I'm in my own class. We're real special. In war, we drop our rivals and throw up a white flag, but we do carry a baguette and a loaded bottle of wine. But, I mean, there's none of that. There's just none of that in the church. And communion is probably the most distinct and profound representation of inclusion in our body. I mean, it's the thing that we all come together for. And we're all the same because we're all Christians in Christ. It doesn't matter if the believer is a tribesman on the Serengeti or the believer is an executive at some global, powerful company. It is the meal in which we are all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28 and yet the wealthy corinthians were treating it like a members only club at a or a members only country club kind of setting and excluding those whom they thought they were secretly despising but making it very much physically manifest through the mistreatment of others but it's just a, it's like they've turned it into a members only country club you know where where the elitist come together and the elitist get their hands on the elements while others do not David Garland wrote, Paul's accusation is that the meal that was supposed to be a sign of their integration and unity has become a flashpoint highlighting their inequality and alienation. And that's a very good explanation of what Paul is saying. In verse 18, Paul just rebukes, excoriates, blasts, hammers the culprits, just hammers them. And he does it in almost a nonchalant kind of chill way. He says, after he tells them there's divisions, he says, and I believe it in part. That phrase, that statement doesn't seem to have much gravity or weight to it, but it does. It's even got a touch of sarcasm to it. Paul is saying this divisive behavior, it it comes as absolutely no surprise to me since I already know that you divide over everything and have zero understanding of communion or Christian fellowship. That's what's packed into, and I believe it in part. I knew this is what you would do because I know how you are is what he's saying. It's just dripping and oozing with sarcasm. It's a rebuke. And then in verse 19, Paul says something kind of extraordinary and and kind of mystical and spiritual and astounding. He describes how God is working behind the scenes. He's describing divine providence. That is the work of God behind all things. He is describing how the sovereign Lord is revealing something through the Corinthians' pride driven, ignorant factions and divisions. Paul says in verse 19 that, that God is using their divisions, their behavior, their terrible behavior, their pride, and all of this to what? Make, quote, recognizable, unquote, the, quote, genuine, unquote, believers from all the carnal imposters in this church. See, I know there has to be factions because through the factions, God is revealing who the real believers are, and who the fakes are. This is what he says. This, again, is a touch on the providence of God, but it's dripping with sarcasm. It's a rebuke. You can tell you guys are dividing over all the wrong reasons, but God is actually secret behind the scenes working to reveal things about you through this that are in no way good. This is what he's saying. The genuine right because now we're distinguishing genuine from false or fake the genuine in the congregation are those who do not cause nor participate in divisions <laughs> who would have ever thought they're the believers that aren't clicking up oh this is my gang homie they're not doing anything like this they're just trying to worship the lord and love everybody and share with everybody and you know like normal believers are to do those are the genuine Right? They don't click up, they don't practice exclusion, they practice inclusion, they fellowship with other believers regardless of their socioeconomic status and I will just say that statistically speaking it's usually the poorer people in the church that do this because they're not hung up on wealth and we know what Jesus said about that. It would be easier for a, what, a rich man to go through the eye of a needle or a, <laughs> the eye Never mind, you just understand how difficult it is for a rich person to (laughs) enter the kingdom. Yeah, totally screwed up. Jesus is like, you're going to do this to me? Yeah. So you understand, he illustrates how difficult it is, right? It would be easier for a man to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. Hey, all right, I got it. So we already understand the difficulty that wealthy people sometimes experience because their wealth can trip them up and block them from seeing their true needs, their spiritual needs. And Paul just anticipates all of this coming from the wealthy here. And he does say this kind of mystical thing that, well, God is just using it to expose the genuine from the false. And we know the genuine are those who aren't involved in these things. They share their lives and resources with others, especially those in need. Man, my brother, I have two tunics. My brother needs a tunic. He doesn't have one. I'm going to give him one. They're like that. They're generous like the Lord. They are those who do not choose favorites but eagerly sit under every approved preacher, hoping to learn and apply the truth. They don't only, sh- you know, they don't show up on the Sundays where Apollos is preaching and ditch all the other ones. They don't play these games. The genuine were characterized by real love and true empathy and you know, solid compassion, a, a real desire in, in the pursuit of unity, and they were characterized by sharing with one another. And then you've got the imposters, and keep in mind that the divisions are exposing who's real and who's false. Then you've got the imposters on the other side, and they're characterized by the exact opposite. They're characterized by favoritism, which the Lord forbids. They're characterized by an early type of class warfare, They're characterized by divisions, dividing over anything and everything. If they can find a way to be upset at somebody, they find it, and now they're divided. So you've got the genuine, who are ultimately characterized by love, and you've got the fakes, the non or the imposters, who are characterized by the opposite, a kind of hatred. And and it's always masked by piety. These people always... The, the carnal fakes, impostors always appear to be very pious, but then they start to show their true colors, and then trouble arises and they're exposed. And Paul's just saying, God's using all of this to show us the reality here. In verse 19, he's simply saying, your actions are totally reprehensible, they're disgusting, they're ungodly, they're demonic. You just need to know that God is using your behavior to reveal to me and to others who is real and who is fake. That's a correction. Can you see how that's corrective and how that's an excoriating rebuke? It's terrible. So the first sin that they had was division during a moment and a sacrament that is meant entirely to unite. There's the abuse. And then we have sin B, discrimination, obviously. We see this in verses 20 to 21a. He says this, again, speaking of communion, when you come together, It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and then others or one goes hungry. Stop there. Paul rebukes their totally goofy, weird mindset and hammers their discrimination against the poor here. When they came together, they claimed that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. I can see the flyers all around town. Come on this Sunday, that eat. No, in the morning, we'll have a worship service, and at night, we're going to have an awesome time in the Lord's Supper. These people were convinced that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, making it known, calling it that, and Paul says, when you come together, that, that ain't what you're doing. Oh, you're doing something. Nobody's going to deny that. Something is happening. And you call it the Lord's Supper. And I'm telling you, that's not what it is. That's what Paul is saying here. This is another sharp rebuke. He's saying in verse 20, when you come together, it actually has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. It's the opposite of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, you're, you're eating the symbols and practicing everything and doing it all, but it's not it. That's not it. Thomas Schreiner said They claim to be eating the Lord's Supper. They think that they are eating the Lord's Supper. And they were almost certainly using the words handed down by Jesus during the Lord's Supper. Still, it is not the Lord's Supper they are eating since divisions, factions, and selfishness reign during the Supper. So they were calling it, but it was far from the mark and not it just didn't even match up. In verse 21a, Paul explains why this was not the Lord's Supper. He is basically saying, in my paraphrase, when you partake, there is nothing communal about it. We are celebrating communion, our oneness with Christ and with one another. And Paul is basically saying, you're calling it communion, but there's nothing communal about it. Because when you show up, you break off into groups And you've got a communal kind of thing going on with this little pot and this little pot and this little pot when you're supposed to have a communal thing going on between everybody. Everybody is involved. Everybody is enjoying uh, enjoying communion and joining in a communal affair. This is what he's saying here. When you partake, there's nothing communal, communal about it, he says. You 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 eat the meals. He points out that you're eating the meals that you actually brought for yourselves and and you eat up and gobble up up all the food that you brought and you leave those who have nothing hungry is what he's saying here. He's saying you gorge yourselves and you gobble up all the communion bread leaving nothing for your impoverished, famished brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. Now, Some theologians argue that the rich were just basically arriving early at these communion celebrations. They would get there before anyone else, get into their little pods, and then they would eat and drink up everything before anyone else showed up. Some argue that that's what was happening. So they would get to communion early and just tear through everything leaving nothing, no scraps, no nothing for anyone else. And then others would show up and maybe they weren't of means, obviously, and they didn't have anything. And they show up and they sit there and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're starving mostly for God's grace, because that's what it symbolizes. They want to participate and have their faith built up and they want to celebrate the Lord's work and there's nothing left for them to do it with. Some say they're they're coming early and just hammering everything, like throwing a bunch of food into a uh, a thing of pigs are just, just blasting through everything. And I think that's a pretty interesting interpretation, but I think Garland's argument is stronger contextually. He says the, the rich devoured their own ample amounts of food in the presence of their fellow Christians who had little to nothing. Okay, so if you devour everything before people get there, that's terrible in one thing, but you do that in front of people who are hungry and want to participate, that's much worse. And Garland thinks that's what's playing out, and I think that fits the context much better. And there are other theologians that agree with with, uh, with Garland, like Winter and Blue and Hofius, Hayes, Erickson. They all agree with Garland. You can go down the list. I think that's the right way to look at it. They're coming with all the, the supply for the celebration and hogging it all out and not leaving any for anyone else. Even Socrates, who was around much earlier than this, and by no means a Christian or anything, but sometimes it's interesting to look at the history surrounding all this. He was around 470 B.C. to 399 B.C. Even, like, the king of philosophers, Socrates, I mean, he's he's just, in terms of of philosophy, he's, he's one of the founding fathers of it. Even this guy understood the importance of community and meal sharing. When he would go to some kind of feast and this is pre-Christ by 400 years roughly, when he would go to some kind of feast because the Romans and the Greeks were big on feasts, especially to their pagan gods. But when he would go to any kind of feast or anything like that, he would actually pull the waiters aside and he had some weight to him, not physically, but he had some cultural weight. I mean, he was a prominent philosopher, the king of philosophy. And so when he pulled people aside, it would have been like a Hollywood star pulling someone aside. So this guy goes into a meal. People are glomming onto him and saying, hey, Socrates, will you sign my back, you know, or whatever? And, and he would go in and he would go grab the waiters during dining events and he would tell them to collect all of the food that is brought by everybody and put it into a kind of a smorgy kind of setup on tables so that everyone that came, whether they brought something or not, could eat. So he would collect everything, put it all out so everyone had a chance to eat. Because what would happen if he didn't do that is everyone would just come and put out their stuff and eat their own stuff. And then some would be left hungry. What am I telling you? Socrates is the inventor of the potluck. (laughs) I thought Christians invented it. It was a Greek philosopher. And yet, we're reading here that the and some of you are saying, I wish he hadn't done that because you're socially awkward, and I love the potluck, but I do have to say I like the meat I bring. <laughs> so I'm very much like, I'm just over there eating my tri-tip. People come near me, I'm like, growling. I, I do this, but all jokes aside, this was a guy that got it and not even a Christian And then you've got the Corinthians who are acting completely clueless here, years later. At this point, they're really not even following. Well, they are in a way, but they aren't, but they're kind of following the Greco-Roman pattern. But then we see Socrates, who was part of that pattern, doing the opposite. The Corinthians just refused to share what they were bringing, during communion and that left all of the supply to themselves so they could just gorge on everything and just eat up all their own food and and just, just pig out and doing it in front of those who had come with sincere hearts and with empty bellies who wanted to eat but mostly wanted to worship the Lord through communion. The Corinthians were like, in some regards, the false shepherds who are mentioned in Jude verse 12. It's only one chapter, so verse 12. They used to go to love feasts and feed only themselves. And they actually ended up dining on the sheep and devouring the sheep spiritually. So they're like them. And Paul treats this state of affairs as something far more serious than some kind of breach of social etiquette. I mean, this would be totally inappropriate for us to do, but it's not, it has more weight than that. The Corinthians, Paul says, cannot call this the Lord's Supper when they come together. You can't call this the Lord's Supper when you act like this. You just can't do it. It is not the Lord's Supper, it's your Supper. You're treating it like it's your celebration and your supper and you're coming and eating up all the food and cake and drinking up all the wine. You are celebrating you. You're not celebrating the Lord because if you were celebrating the Lord, you make sure everyone's stomach has something in it and that everyone gets to participate in this beautiful thing called communion. It's not the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is intended to convey that every participant, to every participant, that he or she is somebody precious to God. That's the point. And yet the Corinthians meal communicated something uh, just to some, something so vastly different from that. They, They were not at all important to Christ, but that they were basically worthless nobodies. Oh, don't, don't. Don't, 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 those are the, those are the bums over there. Don't, don't, don't worry about them. They can, they can figure it out. They can go to the street and panhandle or whatever. Don't worry about them. It's, it's just unbelievable. Communion is a, is a meal in which God lavishes his people with his steadfast love and grace. But when participants hoard the resources, that God has literally given them. They have nothing apart from the father of lights that gives all the good gifts. When they keep the resources, the very resources that God has supplied to them for their good and for the good of others, they're making some brothers and sisters that are present there just feel like there's nothing, that, they, that God doesn't love them, that God doesn't want to grace them that they're outside of the covenant fold, so to speak. It's unbelievable. And this is the vibe. Everyone's using that word today. This is the vibe in this church. There is socioeconomic discrimination. There is rich against poor. There is rich abusing the poor. Psalm 140 verse 12 says this, the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy, just so you know that that's that's actually a promise. That is a guarantee that God is just for the poor, that he will bring them justice. And I'll tell you what, this particular promise, which was made long before this church came around, Corinthian church, it actually proved to be true in the Corinthian church because God did eventually call a great many, if not all, of those rich posers to account. Didn't he? As I said earlier, what did he do? or what what happened to some? Some in that church, because of their abuse of communion, especially the poor during communion, they were struck with weakness, illness, and death. Verse thirty. God upholds the cause of the poor. We even see him do that. And you would say, this would never happen in a church. It happened in a church. Ananias and Sapphira were in a church and struck dead. God can exercise the most devastating discipline against his people at times. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Hello? An entire generation of Israelites did not enter the promised land. God waited till they were all dead and then brought in a different generation. And we think, well, we're just under grace. We can do whatever we want. That is foolish thinking. God is the same in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is loving. And He doesn't put up with any junk. Not from His people, especially some of these Corinthians had been judged by God. Maybe it was divine discipline. Either way, lessons were to be learned. Amen? Don't mess with communion. Don't abuse communion. Don't abuse and mistreat the poor, especially the believing poor, especially them. So, there you have it. Let's move to the Sin C, right? Drunkenness. It's amazing, isn't it? Communion. Hey, let's go. Let's, let's go down. This is like the canals back in the day or Lit Road or Rice Road or Black Angus in my dumb days. They're treating communion like a party spot. I mean, how stupid. Some of you are like, I remember Rice Road. You shouldn't. It's just, you know, you had nothing to do in the Central Valley, man. If you weren't a Christian, you didn't know anything but booze. It was terrible, and and these people here are Christians, and they're, they're acting like this. And we see this in verse 21b to 22. Listen to what he says in 21b. So you eat everything, he says, others go hungry, and now he says, and another, one goes hungry, and now he says, and another gets drunk. And he says in verse 22, what exclamation point? And then he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Stop there. Paul reveals that the, these rich communion abusers were, the mistreaters of the poor were not only devouring all the communion bread, but they were drinking up all the communion wine to the point of even getting blasted, inebriated drunk. During the supper, the the poor literally had nothing to celebrate the Lord's finished work with. No bread, no wine. There was nothing left on the tables for anyone else. No elements, no symbols to take in remembrance of Jesus's broken body and shed blood for the remission of sin. The poor were empty-handed, they were physically hungry and thirsty, and they were spiritually deprived of an essential means of grace. You should feel the weight and gravity again of what Paul is saying, the seriousness here. This is, you wonder why? Oh, wait a minute, they just didn't take communion properly, and some were sick and ill and died. And No, 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 don't think like that. You think, well, that just seems like an unnecessary harshness. They were spiritually abusing poor Christians. That's why this is so serious. This is abuse. This is hatred. During one of the most beautiful, sacred moments that we have. That's why they were struck dead. Some of those who were struck dead were probably believers. And realize that they were breathing at one moment and then weren't. And they were in the presence of Lord probably saying, I think I deserved worse than this. They're lucky they weren't sent to hell for this. I mean, you are in the abuse of communion. You are abusing the elements and the work of Christ and those who are under that work. I cannot tell you how serious this is. This might be the most serious topic in this whole epistle. I think it is. And it seems just overly serious to us. And that's because we now have a diminished view of what communion is. That's what's happened through all the years of us seeing it as not being taken so seriously. And just go over and do whatever you want. And and such judgment, I think, God is bringing on the church today for this. There's nothing left for for these people. And Paul excoriates and rebukes the rich for acting like a bunch of gluttonous pigs. Dukes of hazard, a room full of boss hogs that just can never get enough. I just dated myself. (laughs) He literally says, what? Exclamation point. He cannot believe that others are going hungry and that others are getting drunk. He he literally says, why don't you indulge at home? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? He's not saying, look, if you're going to get drunk, the best place to do that at is at home. He's not saying that at all. He's not condoning drunkenness. He knows it's a sin. There's a couple of points where in his list of sins that bar people from heaven, one of them is drunkenness. He understands the seriousness of drunkenness. What he's saying is, is that there is a time and place to to eat a little bit more than you would and drink a little bit more than you would or whatever normally, and it's not during the Lord's Supper. Do that at home. That's what he's saying. Do your main eating and drinking at home. Why? So that others can participate. In the middle of verse 22, Paul likens their public behavior during communion to... Despising the church of God, his words. This is what happens when believers are not welcomed with love. They're not cared for. They're not provided for, especially during the Lord's Supper. They are despised in these moments. And since they're part of the church, when you despise a brother or sister, you despise the church because they're part of it. This is what Paul is saying. You may not know this, but Greco-Roman society was set up by class. It was. Almost every culture is like this, sadly. But the society in which the Corinthians lived was divided by classes. You had rich, you had some who had a little bit less, and you had some that had nothing. You even had homeless. I don't know if it was like today here, but you had serious stuff like this going on. And then you've got folks in this quote-unquote church especially the rich, especially the wealthy, they thought it was okay to run the church in the same way. <laughs> well, since our culture that we live in is divided by class, therefore, we must divide the church by class. Oh. The French archaeologist and historian Paul vane 1930 to 2022 he just died last year he wrote this and he's just a historian an archaeologist I don't know if he was a believer he says in, in the Greco-Roman world guests of different rank were served different dishes and wines of different qualities according to their respective dignities symbolism reinforced the sense of hierarchy so he's saying as a historian in that particular time and space and culture Classes were divided and the rich got the best stuff and the best food and the best wine and everyone down below got less quality. And and Paul Paul understands this. He knows Greco-Roman culture. He was a Roman citizen. He understands it. And he's basically telling the Corinthians, you're worse than your society. You don't give the poor less like they would deserve societally speaking. You give them nothing. The Corinthians are worse. Oh. So, so terrible, their neglect of the lowly, neglect of the poor in this congregation. And because it was culturally appropriate, they thought it was church appropriate. We're just doing what we're supposed to do. Let's keep doing it. They thought, you know, hey, like society, the church has to have its haves and have nots. The haves get all the good food and drink. The have-nots get whatever's left, if anything at all. And it's okay to practice this during the Lord's Supper. This is the thinking. The rich got stuffed and stoned while the poor were, as Paul says, humiliated. They got nothing. Left out. Treated like rabble. Now here's the deal, what Paul is illustrating here, or at least inferring is that if the rich had shared the elements like they were supposed to, every attender who came to these events would have enjoyed a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine to celebrate with and guess what? There wouldn't have been ever any overeating at all and no drunkenness because everything was distributed. Nobody would have got sauced because they would only had just a little bit to celebrate with and everyone would have had it and that's the idea here. We know that drunkenness usually leads to revelry and all sorts of debauchery. I can tell you stories that I never will because I came out of that at a young age. So since they were getting drunk during communion and since drunkenness leads to all sorts of disaster, I can't even imagine what an entire Lord's Supper celebration on a Sunday night looked like at this church. Because we know what drunkenness leads to. And this is happening in a body of Christ. Mm. I liken it to Animal House. Belushi pouring the mustard down his chest in a toga. What did you guys do last night at your worship service? We watched Belushi pour mustard on his chest. It was amazing. It's just stupid. And Toward the end of verse 22, Paul says you want me to commend you in this? I mean, I commended you a few moments ago because you do tend to write to me when you have questions and you're trying to uphold some of the traditions. Less communion, that's a tradition you're not upholding, but you want me to commend you in this? The way he puts it, it almost seems like they were looking for affirmation. We want you to commend us in the way we do communion. (laughs) And he says, no, I will not. (laughs) I will not. I mean, how could he? How could any other apostle? How could any semi-mature, even new believer who's been saved for 10 minutes, even after being saved for a couple weeks, I knew that this was off limits. I mean, I cleaned out my DVD collection. I was like, Pulp Fiction? No Christian should ever have that. I mean, even a baby Christian understands these things. Like, they were getting drunk, and now they realize, okay, I can't keep doing that. Or they looked at stuff on their computer, and I can't keep looking at this stuff, and and, and we've got these, this church is almost two years old and we've got rich believers and quote unquote mature believers and, and this behavior is this behavior's okay. I, it's like, what did Paul say? I'm, God is using the divisions to expose the real from the fake. We are talking about fakes. And they're in churches. And they prove it through their behavior. He says, I can't commend you for this. Nobody could commend them for this. Only a unregenerate poser would commend this kind of behavior. Would say it's okay to behave like that. You're under grace. Anyone who behaves like this and claims to be under grace, I would question whether or not they are under grace. Because the grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies and makes that person like Jesus over time. They become less carnal and less worldly and more godly. Drunkenness goes away, pornography goes away, profanity goes away, and then somehow comes back, especially during driving. (laughs) I'm not justifying it, I'm just saying. We have an old nature, but I say those extreme things, they start to go away, you realize. You realize that this is not the right behavior. There's no way he can commend them for this. How could he commend them for such a blatant failure to practice the love of Christ? Because at the end of the day, that's really what we're talking about here. Christ displays and shows the love of God lucidly, clear, just the clearest expression of the love of God through a torturous, blood-soaked, devastating sacrifice where he is laid open slayed and bleeding for our sin that's the love of God on display and then during communion that love is displayed once again when we pick up the symbols of that work And when we share with one another during that time and love each other and care for each other and make sure that everyone is covered and gets what they need and all that, we are showing, we're holding and participating in the symbols of God's love and we are showing God's love to one another by inclusion with the believers, by making sure that Ann is cared for. Making sure that Lily and Brenda and Carla and Dustin and everyone in here who names the name of Christ is cared for always, especially during the sacraments, communion. Mm. The love of God is on display, and if we abuse it, we are not displaying his love. I'll close with a just a mega quote from MacArthur. This is just, I think it's in your bulletin. He just kind of summarizes this text that we've looked at. He says, a Christian's attitudes and motives should be pure at all times. But when believers come to the table of the Lord, sharing the bread of his body and the cup of his blood, it is absolutely necessary that they leave behind all sin, all bitterness, all racial and sexual prejudice, all class pride, and all feelings of superiority. Of all places and occasions, those attitudes are most out of place at the Lord's Supper. They grievously profane that holy, beautiful, and unifying ordinance of God. And that's, that's why he's John MacArthur. <laughs> that's a mega quote. That's something to remember right there. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will focus on the second point, which has to do with education. Paul's going to educate them on communion. Until then, and from here forward, we should reflect on how we treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord, especially when we approach the supper table for communion. At RHC, we do not overindulge and experience shortages when it comes to the elements This is like our struggle. If we have a struggle here, it's not identical to the Corinthian struggle in terms of gorging and devouring all the resource and leaving those who have little, nothing. That's not really our issue, but we could have maybe relational problems and divisions and relational struggles and these sorts of things that should be addressed before we go any further, before we approach the supper table. We are... And I want you to listen to me as closely as you can because this is a struggle for all of us. As we approach communion, we could have strife and relational issues with others. Okay, that's how I preface what I'm going to say. And here's what I want to say. We are commanded in the most serious manner, to forgive others. We are commanded to not only forgive others of their trespasses when they sin against us, but to seek their forgiveness when we trespass against them. We are to seek forgiveness from those whom we've hurt, especially when we're talking about the body of Christ and the Lord's Supper. Matthew 6, 12, you know the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. The believer who practices forgiveness shall enjoy the grace of daily forgiveness and close fellowship with God. That is clearly stated in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6:14. So we are commanded to be forgivers. We are commanded to seek forgiveness. And those who actually practice it regularly, they enjoy the grace of a daily cleansing and forgiveness of God. It doesn't Change their eternal destination, but it does impact their fellowship with God. So if you're a forgiver, you enjoy the fruits of grace, and God continues to pour out his mercy and grace on you and forgive you of your daily trespasses. And yet the one who withholds forgiveness, they rob themselves of this grace, and over time may even prove to be an imposter. And we need to take this particular scriptural warning and really it's what we're talking about here in a way in Corinthians but we need to take this particular warning to heart and do what God calls us to do. We need to forgive no matter what. Those who refuse to give could be a narcissist which is an abomination. We need To forgive, we need to seek the forgiveness. And the one who withholds it, forget it. And I say that we become forgivers and practice forgiveness, not merely for the sake of communion. That's what we've been talking about. But for the safety of our own souls. The gospel, if I could boil the gospel down to one word, it would be forgiveness. And if you will not forgive others, you have departed from the gospel. There's just no plainer way to put it. You've departed from it because it is about forgiveness. We have pushed aside the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We have pushed aside the true elements that actually wash away all our sin and bring forgiveness with a holy God. And maybe you're thinking, but Pastor Phil, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but you just do not understand how deeply this person cut me. You just don't understand my situation. And you're probably right. I may not be aware of what someone did to you. I may not have any idea of what it is. I may not under, maybe I do know what it is, and I don't see it as seriously as you do. Maybe I, I don't have this, the level of empathy that you need. Maybe I just can't get my mind around it. I just don't know. Usually it's because I just don't know. But some could say that I, I what you're saying i understand it's biblical and even theoretical in a sense i get it but you just don't understand what's been done to me i was molested as a child don't tell me that i can't understand don't do it i i don't tell people that but you think that well you know you just you just don't understand You're right, I probably don't. And maybe I need to be a little bit more empathetic and sympathetic to you. But let me explain what I do understand, what I'm perfectly knowledgeable of. I know what Christ did for you on the cross. I'm an expert in it. I've spent the better part of 20 years trying to wrap my mind around this gospel. I know what He did for you on the cross. I I comprehend that. I understand that. I get that. And I also know and understand and am an expert in knowing what God does to those who do not believe the gospel nor practice forgiveness. I know what he did in forgiveness, and I know what happens to those who reject the gospel and won't forgive. Don't even want the forgiveness of God. That's my career, to know and teach these things. So I may not know what somebody did to you, but what I do know is that if you stay in that mode, what God will do to you is so far beyond what anyone in this life has done to you. Come to your senses and forgive. I'll say this with love in my heart. You're not as important as you think because that's what gets in the way. You don't understand what they did to me. Who the heck are you? You worshiped on Mount Olympus? You, hopefully, are a sinner saved by grace and that is the best you will ever get. And you have been forgiven and you are called to forgive. It is within your ability and power through the Spirit to forgive. And the best way to model the gospel is to be a forgiver not a big giver, not a big servant. To be a forgiver, that is the gospel. And you are important to the one whom it matters to, to the one who redeemed you and slaughtered his son for your redemption. Find your value in his opinion and not in the opinions of men because that's what you're hanging on. You can't stand the fact that that person treated you that way and doesn't like you or love you or respect you the way they should. They are just a sinner. Lower the bar. Drop your expectations. But you can have an infinitely high bar for Christ because he's above it. Since Christ is both Savior and Judge, John 3.16, For God so loved the world we know, John 5.22 speaks of all judgment being given to Christ from the Father. The Father, by the way, judges no one. Christ is the Judge. Since Christ is both Savior and Judge, He will either redeem or repay those who harm His people. I pray that he redeems them. Vengeance belongs to whom? To Christ alone, Romans 12, 19. Therefore, we can leave these difficult, challenging, struggling matters in the hands of the one who executes perfect justice every time. Vengeance is not yours And if you are seeking to be vengeful through a lack of forgiveness, you are just sinning against the Lord. Let the stuff go and trust it to Christ. Maybe you're doing these things and you model the Corinthian behavior because you don't yet know the Lord at all. And you need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ, your only hope. He will wash away your sin, forgive your sin, clothe you in His righteousness, justify you before God, save you from hell, damnation, sin, Satan, death, and hell. And He will, as a grace, teach you to be a forgiver.